exactly two weeks from today, Saturday, October the 1st, <coughs> Feast of Trumpets. Uh, we'll go ahead and have a our service at the normal Sabbath time at 1 o'clock on Trumpets next or two weeks from today. And then we have <coughs> the fast of the seventh month coming up on Monday, October 3rd, two days after the Feast of Trumpets. Fast of the seventh month is Monday, October 3rd. <coughs> Be sure to look, write that one down and look forward to it. <laughs> it is actually a very important date and time in the history and in the present. <coughs> then, of course, atonement is ten days after trumpets, so it falls on Monday, October 10th. Monday, October 10th is the Day of Atonement. And again, we'll have <coughs> that service at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Then we have the Feast of Tabernacles. Saturday, the 15th of October. And the last great day is Saturday, the 22nd of October. We'll uh, have out a schedule of service times shortly on that. I want to discuss it with people here a little bit today and get the schedule firmed up. <coughs> so that's pretty much it on announcements, I guess. Oh, I was going to say, I think we will set aside Sunday the 16th. That's the second day of the feast. For those who may, may not have seen some important historical sites here in the area, uh, so you might keep that in mind, and we'll have a very early service that day, 5 a.m. No, we won't go quite that early. <coughs> I think we'll put it at about 9, though. Everybody ought to be upright by 9 o'clock, so we can have the rest of the day to visit some very, very important uh, petroglyphs and sites that I believe we've been able to identify as having to do with God and the Bible and the early Israelites. So uh, let's do that then on Sunday the 16th. We'll have uh, a service early in the morning and then the rest of the day can be devoted to that. And that's for anyone who has not seen these. There are, will be probably a couple of people coming to the feast that have not seen them. And uh, and some of you may want to review anyway and see them again. So... With that, let's move on then to the book of 1 John. <clears throat> we came down to the end of chapter 4 last week, so we'll begin with chapter 5. Again, John is going through and defining our love of God and our love of each other and what that means, uh, because the world does not understand love uh, from God's definition. We look upon it only, primarily only as emotion, but there's a lot more to it than that. It includes emotion, certainly, but if there's more to it than just that. So let's see if he defines it further here in chapter 5. <clears throat> he says, Whosoever believes that Emmanuel is the Christ is begotten of God. And everyone that loves him that begat loves him also that is begotten of him. So, the Father begat the Son, and also us. So, if we really truly believe in the Father, we will also believe in the Son, and we will believe in each other as those whom God has called, and we are begotten of Him. It's all family. We're to be the brothers and sisters of Christ, the elder brother, and be in the family of God, and it gets even more complicated in that we are to be not only brothers and sisters, but also the bride of Christ. So we're depicted as brothers and sisters, and all of us, male and female, as bride. So even though God set things up, male and female, here in this life, the analogies are there for a closer relationship that overlaps in many ways in the eternal relationship that we will have with the Father and the Son. But everything in this life and the way that God set it up points to that. And we need to always keep that in mind. Now, verse 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and keep His commandments. So he says up in verse 1, and if you read only that, it says all you have to do is believe that Christ is begotten of God, and that's all you need to know. And that's the way the Protestants look at it, but they don't read the rest of it. Uh, We know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. And commandment keeping is part of believing that Christ is begotten and now born of God, and that we are begotten and will soon be born. Then he absolutely defines love in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. There in one sentence is the definition of loving God and the love of God and what it is. It is the keeping of His commandments. You can have all kinds of emotion, you can have all kinds of ideas, but if you don't keep the commandments, you do not have the love of God. It's that simple. And most of Christianity, so-called, believes the commandments are done away. And then he says, and his commandments are not grievous. Now, people think they are. They say the law is dirty and nasty and mean and evil and it'll kill you. But God says that the commandments of God are not grievous. Now, what's grievous about not being killed? (laughs) What's grievous about not being lied to? What's grievous about not having somebody else sleep with your mate? What's grievous, really, about keeping the Sabbath? Is, it, is that a grievous thing? Is it, is it a nasty, mean thing to love God above everything else? <laughs> you know, to love your neighbors yourself? What's, what's so nasty about that? You know, what, what is the part that grieves people? What is it about the whole thing that they don't like? The only grievous thing is our fleshly desires, our wrong lusts, vanities, greeds, jealousy, envy, We're not supposed to have those things, and yet those are an intrinsic part of the human makeup. That's what the human mind consists of. So when someone says you're supposed to control those things and not let your human nature get away with you, (coughs) then that's a very grievous thing to us. And a lot of people, when you say, well, you need to keep the commandments, oh, I don't want any part to do with that religion. No, it isn't the commandments are grievous. It's our human nature that's grievous. <laughs> that's what causes us the problems. I don't, we don't even grasp or begin to understand what it would be like not to have human nature. God doesn't have it, but he put it in us for a reason, and that is that we might learn to overcome and grow and prove that we would never turn against him ever like Satan and the demons did. So we had to have this kind of mind, and we have to learn to conquer it. And that is a very hard and grievous thing to do. But it isn't the commandments that are bad. It's our nature that's bad. We need to understand the difference. (coughs) Then he goes on, verse 4, For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So he says, if we are begotten of God, we're being led by His Spirit, and if we are begotten, that means we have been properly baptized, we've had the laying on of hands, and received the Spirit of begettle from the Father and the Son. And then we must overcome the world. We must overcome the way the world lives, which is what our nature is. Your nature and mine is exactly the same as the way the world lives. There's no difference. And we have to overcome that. And he tells all the churches there in Revelation 2 and 3 to overcome. Even the so-called Philadelphians who think they have nothing against them. They're told to overcome too. Because everybody has human nature and everybody uh, grieves at giving up what they like. 
So he says, whoever is begotten of God has the Spirit of God, obviously, and the Spirit of God will lead us to overcome our nature, to put it aside, to squash it down, to have victory over it. And he says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Well, what does faith have to do with overcoming? Well, you'd better believe that God is God, and that Christ is His Son, and that if you keep His ways, you will have eternal life. Now, it is that carrot that is put before us that gives us the strength, the will, the direction, the commitment to overcome the world that is our human nature. We have been promised something. Now, if you weren't promised something that you really wanted, you wouldn't overcome, would you? We have a very strong difficulty overcoming <coughs> even when we have great promises of eternal life. Because human nature and Satan are so strong. But faith is required. Belief that the effort that we put forth to overcome is going to be rewarded. So it requires faith to overcome. Belief that it is actually going to happen. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Emmanuel is the Son of God? He's actually encapsulating what I just explained. Who is going to overcome the world? Except those that believe Christ came, that he kept the commandments, he went back to his Father, and he has eternal life yet again. And he says, if we will follow in his ways, do as he says, we will be there also. So no one else is going to follow the commandments of God except someone who truly believes and understands what God's love is and that it is commandment-keeping. Go for a moment back to something we've already discussed in First John 2. In verse 3, put together with 1 John 5, 3, which we just read about love is the keeping of the commandments. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It says you have to know the Lord, is the way the Protestants put it. Well, how do we know if we love him? If we don't keep his commandments, that shows that we don't love him. We love doing what our human nature wants to do more than we love him. Now, he that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I think I made the point when I went through there that, that the Protestant world, the Catholic world, uh, the Mormon world, the Jewish world, are not Christians, and they don't know God, because they don't keep his commandments. They're liars, and the truth is not in them. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, and hereby know we that we are in him. And he that says he abides in him ought also to walk even as he walked. So, if you don't do and live the way Christ lived when he was here on the earth, it just shows that you're a fake. <laughs> it's not real Christianity. I don't know how you could put it any plainer than John does here. Now, he had a great deal of love, but boy, look at the emphasis on commandment-keeping in this, all of his writings. You've got to really believe that Emmanuel is the Son of God in order to overcome. Now, verse 6, again in chapter 5, <coughs> excuse me, this, this is he that came by water and blood, even Emmanuel the Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, what do you mean by water and blood? Well, water represents the Spirit of God, and it also represents truth. Living water, the truth of God. So he came and brought true doctrine, good water, good drink, and his own blood which was shed. So he brought both water and blood, and it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So he's actually bringing up three things here, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and water and blood, 
that Christ brought with him. Now, verse 7 we'll skip because it is not in the original text. Uh, it was added by a Catholic monk named Erasmus uh, in trying to prove that there's a trinity. So they added that to indicate that there is one, and that we know is not true. There are way too many things that show the Father and the Son and leave the Holy Spirit out <laughs> uh, all through the New Testament. The Father and the Son. It is their spirit, but it is not an individual. So verse 7, just cross out and forget about. So we go from verse 6, where he says that he came by water and blood, and that the Spirit of God, which is truth, uh, witnesses that. And then he explains the witness further in verse 8. There are three that bear witness in earth. So it isn't three individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, they call it, or Spirit. Uh, and he doesn't name those three. Now he does in verse 7, which was added because that was a good place to add it if you wanted to try to prove something by saying that there were three, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, but that's not true. There are three that bear witness in earth, and it doesn't name three individuals, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. The three are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. That's what really is being said. The truth of God through the water, proper doctrine, followed by water baptism, the blood that was shed for us, and the Spirit of God that is placed within us as a seed of begettle that he's been talking about all through. So, what is it that sets us apart? The bare witness of God. It's true doctrine, the proper acceptance of the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and the Holy Spirit of begettle that is in our minds. Those are the three things that set us apart from the rest of the world. So he's talking about a witness here on the earth. Is the Father here? Is the Son here? No. In spirit, but they're at their throne in heaven. But there are three things here on the earth, aren't there? Don't we have the truth? Don't we have Christ's sacrifice and blood? And don't we have the spirit of begettle? Those are the three witnesses here on earth. Not the so-called Holy Trinity that they try to make this say. <clears throat> and in fact, the context in verse 6 and 8 shows that verse 7 was added. Because uh, he defines the three that bear witness on the earth. And it isn't the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Now, you can have men say you're a Christian. You can have men say they're a Christian. But they're not unless they have these three things as a witness. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. Got to have all three. And that witness comes from God. It isn't the witness of men. Uh, there are all kinds of people that call each other brother uh, in Christianity and all kinds of different uh, organizations. But their witness means nothing because they don't understand the truth. They don't understand the commandments. They don't understand Christ's sacrifice and what He actually did. And they certainly don't walk as He walked, keeping the commandments. And that's what this is all about. Verse, go back to verse 3, establishing the context... It's about the keeping of the commandments. <clears throat> if you don't do that, you don't have these three witnesses. Verse 10, He that believes on the Son of God, or in the Son of God, has the witness in himself. He has the truth, the water. He has the blood of Christ shed for him, which was made possible at baptism, and he also has the Holy Spirit of Begettle 
so that he might grow and be part of the kingdom of God when born at the first resurrection. So that witness is in each one of us. We have those three things. He that believes not God has made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. Now they believe Christ's name. Do they believe the record that he left? A record of obedience and never breaking the law of God, never sinning. Sin is the transgression of the commandments. That's what it is. And he never did that. Now, most religionists will say the commandments are, again, are done away with, and therefore they don't have the testimony or the witness of Christ. They're liars. They don't believe the record God gave of His Son. They don't believe Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where He raised the law from just physical to the spiritual, to mind control, our own mind control of ourselves. <clears throat> so they're liars. Verse 11, this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. We need to believe that. That's what faith is about, is that eternal life is offered through the life, not just the death, but the resurrection and the life of His Son. That if He is alive again, and He is, that we also can live forever. There are people that say Christ was not resurrected, that he was just a, a good man, a good teacher, and he had lots of kids and several wives, and, and that they're kin to him. I don't believe that. I believe he went back to his Father in heaven, and his life is the witness that we can have life. If he's still dead, what hope do we have? We'll die and be dead. There is a resurrection of the dead. That's what this whole plan and purpose is down here. Verse 13, These things have I written to you, now these were church members, that believe in the name of the Son of God. Everything he stood for, his authority, the way he lived, is part of what his name is. Now if you hear of a human being somewhere on the earth that you know of, uh, what do you know about them? Certain things will come to your mind about that person. doesn't matter who it is, whether it's the governor of Texas or the premier of France or the candidate for president of the United States. Certain things come to your mind about that person. True or untrue uh, is, is not the point. But their name stands for something. Uh, we think of certain ones as liars. We think of others as murderers. We think of others as whatever they are. <clears throat> we think of the Son of God, then we think of commandment keeping and no sin and purity and righteousness. And if we follow Him and follow what His name stands for, then we know that we have eternal life dwelling within us. Just like a baby in the mother's womb has human life dwelling within it. It is alive in there. And at some point it starts kicking and letting her know he's alive. So we also have eternal life in us. We have not been born yet as spirit, but we do have spirit living in us. We have eternal life already begotten that is growing toward birth. And that birth will occur when we're changed at the first resurrection. That which is spirit is spirit, and that which is flesh is flesh, John said in chapter 3. We've been over that. So, the word genio here throughout what John is writing does mean begotten, not born. We have... Do I have eternal life? Yes, you do too. But I'm not spirit yet. Not, I've not been born as an eternal being yet, but I have that seed planted so that it can ripen and pre be prepared to be born.
And that is a form of eternal life that has not yet been extended. As it stands right now, you and I are going to die. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is. It's appointed to all men once to die. But that doesn't mean that we don't have eternal life residing in us as a begettle, and that will be made complete at the resurrection. Verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, didn't Christ say that? And John wrote it back in the last chapters of John, which we read at Passover. Uh, that if we ask according to His will, He will do it. John's quoting that again, thinks something he had written previously. He hears us if we ask according to His will. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. So, what did James say? That the prayer of faith will heal the sick. We have to believe it. We have to know it. We have to trust in it and expect it. Because that's what true belief really is. If it's just a hope against hope, it isn't faith. It's just wish. It's just hope. So we have to know that what we ask is according to His Word, to His will. And if we are confident of that, then we can have more trust and more belief that when we ask what we wish of Him, that He will hear us and answer. Now, right now, we have to take into consideration what His will is in terms of the church. Is it all just our faith, let's say, for healing? Now, that is certainly a very great element in it, but we also have to understand what His will is right now. And that's part of the equation. His will right now was to scatter the church because we were not as full of faith and obedience and commitment as we should have been. So when He scattered the church, it was because we were not fulfilling the will of God the way He wanted it done. So we have had all kinds of trials, tribulations, and troubles since Herbert Armstrong died and the church went completely astray. And we are trying to repent, change, grow, and overcome now. So... He is not answering our prayers in the same way that He will soon. He says He's turned His face from us. We've read that several places in the prophecies. So when He turns His face from you, that means He can't stand to look at you. That's what it means. And therefore, we have to be doing the will of God, as written in this book, and written in the prophecies, and turn to Him with our whole heart, and when He knocks on the door, we'll answer with our whole heart. Then, <clears throat> He says, we will call and He will answer. If we fast properly, if we obey properly, I'm quoting Isaiah 58 there, that He will then hear and answer, and our health will go forth speedily. So, in essence, the point is, it is not the will of God to heal all sickness and illness right now. It is the will of God to scatter and to punish and to chasten us so that we might respond better to Him. So, understanding His current will, we don't ask the same way as we will when we know it is His will then to begin to heal as per Isaiah 35 and other scriptures, Isaiah 54, where he says he is going to heal the blind and the deaf and the weak and restore our bodies and our minds and our legs and our, our, our health in preparation for the work that must be finished here on the earth before Christ returns. Building of the temple, the witness that goes out to the world. That has to be done. <clears throat> And then he says, when we call, he will hear and he'll answer speedily. Because it will be at that point his will to heal us all. 
if we are obedient to him. Meantime, I've tailored my anointing to ask for intercession, for some healing, for mercy and for forgiveness, uh, knowing that it is not his will right now to just simply heal everybody. So I put it a little differently, knowing that his will right now is to scatter and to chasten and that we're not going to get the answers in the way we would like to have them until the time of refreshing comes. And then he will answer speedily and he will hear us. So, somebody might not be being completely healed and you say, well, where's your faith? And get judgmental. Well, it isn't necessarily just that factor. It's, it's many things combined. And that's what John is saying here. If we ask according to his will, and we need to understand what his will is this week, next week, 20 years ago, and what it will be a year or two or three from now. Now, we used to get more healings in the church than we do now. We used to have our children healed more frequently than we do now. Because we were seeking God more back in those years than how we came to be approaching Him in the 70s and 80s and 90s. <clears throat> and therefore, it was His will to do more healing and to call more people and for them to see the healings and to have their faith strengthened. So when He was calling, it wasn't necessarily always our level of righteousness and faith. When he was calling, it was his will to let people know that that was his work. And then when people began to take it all for granted, then we got less and less of that until he finally came to the point he spewed us out. And it hasn't been his will to restore at this point. It has been his will to bring us to repentance. And when we turn to him with our whole heart, then he is going to turn his face back to us and he is going to heal again. And he's going to do it in the way that he did in Acts 2 at Pentecost, where even the shadow passing would heal. <clears throat> We're headed again for that time. Would you be able to pray with more faith at that point? Well, I should think so. Because you'll know that it's will, God's will to heal. Now, right now, it's, it's somewhat iffy because of the circumstance. So we petition for mercy and forgiveness and His patience while we get ourselves to the point we ought to be. And we need to be working on that daily. Walking as Christ walked and thinking as He thought and truly believing in the Son of God so that we keep His commandments and we know that we have eternal life abiding in us. That's what John is trying to get across to us here. If we know His will, and His will is different at times. What about Adam and Eve? There's a good example. His will was to give them everything they wanted. The temperature was perfect. They lived naked. The food was perfect. Everything was great. It was his will to bless them. Then they rebelled against him, and his will changed. And it didn't make any difference how much they praised. His will had changed. His will at that point was to give them locusts and uh, thorns and lack of rain, where they had to work by the sweat of their brow. It wasn't to give a woman an easy time in childbirth, but to make it painful and hard. His will had changed, hadn't it? And essentially, the will that he had at that point is the same that he has toward mankind as a whole today. And the only ones who have an opportunity of having his face turned to them and having the kind of blessings that the prophecies talk about is those whom he has called out who have the witness of the water and the blood and the Spirit living in them. And only those who keep his commandments receive that Spirit. 
God, doesn't it say, gives His Spirit to them that obey. Obey what? John makes it very clear that it's the commandments that have to be obeyed. The Sabbath is the test commandment. How many of them keep that? Very few. All right, so we ask according to His will, and then we know that our petition will be heard and answered if it's according to His will. Of course, you know, your will is for Him to do what you want right now. But is that His will? That's what we have to question. That's what we have to find out. So I've tried to explain where we are right now and why things are difficult as they are because he's not yet turned his face back to us, but he is going to very shortly, and then things will change. We fulfill Isaiah 58 in the way that we should. It will change, and we'll be healers of the breach. Now, verse 16, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not to death. Now, the wages of sin is death. Uh, and we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, what is a sin that is not unto death? Let's read on, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, there is a sin, into the verse 16, unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, what's the difference here between a sin that is to death and a sin that is not to death? The wages of all sin is death. Clearly defined in Romans 6.23. 3.23 and 6.23. Let's go for a moment to... uh, Let's see, I have some scriptures written down here. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. This is Christ speaking. Verses uh, 31, 32. Well, let's start in verse 30. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say to you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven to men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven to men. So, all kinds of sin and all kinds of different blasphemy, ungodly things that can be said, will be forgiven, or can be forgiven. But blasphemy against God's Spirit, against God Himself, that is His Spirit, is, is God, will not be forgiven to men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's us, we are the sons of men, it shall be forgiven him. But whoso speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. (coughs) Then he calls them a generation of vipers and says, You're evil, how can you speak of good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So here he was dealing with people who were on the very edge of not being able to be forgiven because they would not accept him as the Son of God and his words. It wasn't just his person, but his words they didn't like. So they were coming very, very close to blasphemy against God and against his Son. And that is a scary position to be in. So here he explains something that cannot be forgiven. If we turn against God and are not willing to follow Him once we understand, then that cannot be forgiven. That's where we make a turn toward uh, eternal death in the lake of fire. Let's follow that up a little bit in... uh, Hebrews 6, get a little fuller explanation of what he, what he means by this. Hebrews 6. Verse 
He's talking here at the beginning of the chapter about going on to perfection, not, not having to go through all the uh, basic doctrines again. Uh, and this will we do if God permit, verse 3. In verse 4, then, he begins to explain. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Remember I said, once we understand the truth, enlightenment has to do with this. Because there are a lot of people out there who curse God and don't believe there's a God and claim they're atheists and all kinds of things. And certainly in that sense blaspheme God and His holy name. But they have not been enlightened. They don't know the truth. And therefore they can come up in the second resurrection and learn who God is and what he is, and have an opportunity to repent. It doesn't matter how nasty they've been. If they weren't enlightened, how can they be held responsible? You can't do what you don't know. So enlightenment is part of the equation here. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That means they came to understand... They were given the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and the truth, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, when are you made a partaker of the Holy Spirit? After proper baptism, you have hands laid on you, and God at that moment conceives you of His Spirit. Now, you weren't a partaker of it until you were begotten of God with the laying on of hands. So this is talking about someone who comes to know the truth, who have been baptized and have received the spirit of begettle. If they kill that begettle, what happens? You become a spiritual abortion. Just as a baby who dies in the womb becomes a physical abortion, you become a spiritual abortion. Let's go on, verse 5. And have tasted the good word of God. So they've understood God's Word and tasted it, known what it tasted like, understood it. And the powers of the world to come. So they've understood the purpose of human life. We're here to become part of the kingdom of God, the family of God. So they've understood eternal life and the purpose of man, the mystery of the ages. Now, once you've come to that point... Verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So a sin unto death is one where you have become part of the body of Christ and received his Holy Spirit of begettle and understood his plan and purpose. And if you turn away from it at that point, bringing you back is, he says, impossible. Like the dog that returns to his wallet, or his wallet, his, his vomit, or the, uh, the sow to her mud, her manure, as James put it. So what you're doing is committing an unpardonable sin. Now, if the baby dies in a mother's womb, can you bring it back to life? No, it's dead. It's gone. It has to be either passed by her or taken out, lest it kill her too. There's a lesson there. If someone who has been converted begins to turn away from God, he not only is killing himself but he is endangering the life of the mother, the church. That's why they have to be put out and removed from the church, lest they cause the mother to die. Or one bad apple spoils the barrel, is another way of putting it. But the birth analogy is God's analogy. And the mother will die if that baby is not removed. It will spoil and spoil and cause her body to become poisoned. Just like someone with an attitude of bitterness and hate and animosity will cause the church to begin to die. For people to lose their faith and their trust in God.
So, God says people need to be cast out when they become that way. And He says He will remove the rebels. So, there, there are some drastic things going to be done ahead for the church, the mother. And I'll prove to you again in just a little bit that the mother is the church. John says it in so many words. Let's go to one more uh, here in the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 10, verse 26. A little more enlightening, uh, uh, enlightening. Verse 25, he says, Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So he says that we are, are to assemble together. We're not to forsake it as some do, because the day is approaching, and we need to be here to encourage one another. And then he says in verse 26, For if we sin willfully... Uh, beginning not to attend services and, for, and assembling together is beginning to turn away from what God said to do. Because he said to keep the Sabbath, and he says don't quit doing that, but continue it, especially as you see the day approaching. We need to be here most of the time. Well, if you're sick or once in a while you're on vacation or taking a break, uh, but then we can still tune in. So, beginning to become sporadic in our attendance is beginning to turn away from God's will that we keep come together on a holy convocation on the Sabbath. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. So he says, eternal death will come, a lake of fire, a fearful looking toward a fire. And that's for someone who sins willfully. That is, they turn from God once they've been there. And it isn't just a matter of temptation. You see, everybody is tempted with his own lusts and carried away by them. Uh, and then we, if we sin somehow, some way, then our conscience smites us if we understand the truth of God, right? But if we deny that conscience, that truth, and we say, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want to do, then you're getting very close to an unpardonable condition because you have set your will against God's ways. If you feel some remorse some shame when you sin, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. It's not so much a sin, but it's an unpardonable condition, a spiritual condition that you get yourself in, okay? Where you just will not repent, and you want to do what you want to do, and you're going to do it, and you don't care. Not caring is a lot of it. That isn't all of it, because if you read Hebrews 12, it says that Esau had gotten so bitter against Jacob that he could not change his attitude. Even though he sought it carefully and with tears, he came to the point he wanted to forgive Jacob. But he had become so bitter he could not get over it even with prayer to God. Now, was he putting himself in danger? Probably so. On the other hand, Esau was never converted, and it doesn't say that he is lost eternally. But he was very close to an unpardonable position, uh, unpardonable circumstance, because he could not, would not give up that hate. Just wouldn't do it. It's too deeply ingrained. So, uh, his attitude shows the type of attitude that becomes unpardonable. So let's go on uh, in chapter 5, of verse 17 of John, 1 John. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. <coughs> what is a sin that is not unto death? It's one that you're willing to repent of, you're willing to work on, you're willing to change. 
then the blood of Christ will cover it. But if you willfully sin, once you understand, uh, then you're headed for the lake of fire. Verse 18, We know that whosoever is begotten of God sins not. Well, we're begotten of God through baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Does that mean we don't sin anymore? No, we all still sin. We still make mistakes. We still think wrong things. But we don't live a life of sin. We're not out there pursuing sin. We're trying to do what's right, and out of temptation in our human nature, we still make mistakes. But he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. So, he doesn't say you never sin. It says that you keep yourself. You work at staying away from sin. You keep yourself from it. Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. But you're not out there just seeking sin like many in the world are. And it puts you in a position where Satan can't touch you. Well, <laughs> he goes to God to accuse you. <coughs> and he can't find anything to accuse you of. <coughs> because even what you do, you ask for forgiveness of, and the blood of Christ wipes it away. And he can't touch you. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. Satan has deceived the whole world, and it lies in wickedness and in sin, and is not forgiven. And we are of God, and how do we know that? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We have the water, the truth, we have the blood of Christ, and the Spirit of God in us, begotten. We are of God. The rest of the world lies in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is coming, that is, dwelling in us, and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true. <coughs> true and truth are similar. Even in His Son, Emmanuel, this is the true God, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, an idol is something you put ahead of God. <coughs> Our human nature is what makes His commandments grievous because we want to sin. We like things that seem pleasurable to us that are not right, that hurt someone else, whether we know it or not. Now, I, I think I may quit here and continue later. My voice is getting a little cracked up, but I did tell you I'd prove to you that uh, that the church is the mother. And we know from Galatians 4.26 where he says, Jerusalem, which is from above, is the mother of us all. That's speaking of the church, as Hebrews 12.22 and 23 show. <clears throat> but John puts it here in the next verse, so I'll go there, Second John 1. The elder, speaking of himself, Unto the elect lady, that's the church, and her children, whom I love in the truth. So he's writing it to the church, the mother, and we are the children of the mother. So God very clearly shows that the analogy uh, of the church is that she overlooks, oversees the church as a mother would. And the children are uh, then there for the mother to direct, to guide, and to lead. You have those who say that, well, we're all the same, we're all apostles, we shouldn't have ministers and teachers. Well, what does a mother do? <laughs> what does a mother do? From the child time those children are little bitty babies, she begins to guide, to lead, to instruct, to help, to serve them, to do what she can to keep them alive, to keep them happy, to keep them healthy, to keep them obedient, to keep them out of trouble. That's what a mother does. And the church is assigned the ministry, if you will, in the position of the mother to the children in the church. 
Now, it's not our job to come, to come between the Father and the children. It's our job day to day to teach, to instruct, to guide, and to lead the children to their Father so that they're happy to see Dad when he comes home in the evening, so that they are obedient to their Father. That's what the church is. She's not in line between the children and the Father. She's to the side, in that sense, in an organizational chart where she points us to our Father. She doesn't come between. You've seen circumstances. You've probably experienced them. When a father gets angry with his children, the mother will try to intervene. She'll stop him. Don't punish that child. Don't hit that child. Don't do this. Don't do that. And she'll, she will come between the father and the child. That is a wrong position to take. I just heard a story recently where a man was uh, working with some chemicals in his home, doing a little lab work in the kitchen. And uh, his son was there, little guy, and he had some lye there. And that child drank the lye. Well, what it did was it ate his mouth out, his throat out, his esophagus, and his stomach. Just burned them out. Now, the father, who was doing the work, had vinegar there. Vinegar is an antidote to lie. And had he given him the vinegar, made him swallow the vinegar immediately then the damage would have been mitigated a great deal because lie doesn't react that fast. It could have neutralized it. But it would have still done some damage, but it wouldn't have done that. They wound up having to have uh, the child's colon used to create a stomach, to create an esophagus, to make him a whole new system of digestion from his own colon. This wasn't somebody in the church or just a story I heard recently. But the point I want to get to is this one. As horrible as that was. When that child swallowed the lie, his mother was there and she panicked. She grabbed the child and would not let her husband near it. He knew what to do, and that was give the child vinegar, and the mother would not allow that to happen. She just went bananas and kept the child from the father. Now there is an instance where the mother came between the children and their dad, or that child and the dad, and the consequences were terrible. Now, through Christ, we have been given direct access to the Father, through the Son, and through the Mother, who is here to guide us and lead us and help us get to the Father. But you have access to the Father any time of day or night through the sacrifice of His Son. And the Mother is there to help that process, to help that relationship. The Mother is not to come between the father and the child, as that mother did. And that was a disaster. If there was ever a time to hit a woman or a mother, that probably would have been it. I can't think of many instances, I can't think of any at the moment, where that would be uh, desirable or justified. But under those circumstances, when that child was about to die... Maybe the father should have reacted and smacked her a good one and then given the child the vinegar which he knew it needed. I wasn't there. Uh, Everybody panicked, I'm sure. So, one of those situations where people just lose control. But certainly the point can be made that the mother is there to help that child in relationship to the father. That's what the, the church, the mother of us all, is here for. And John understood that. <clears throat> the elect lady, the church, and her children, that's the members. So that's why he has a ministry, is to guide, to lead, direct the children in their relationship with the Father, not to come in between. So maybe that little uh, story will help us understand
the relationship that should be there. She should have said, what do we do to the dad? We'll give him vinegar. Well, okay, <laughs> you know, if it had been handled properly. But in panic and so on, I, I, I guess I can't blame the mother. She had, it, all she could see is that what her husband was doing was about to kill her child. Is all she could under, is all she could think. So she withdrew. Well, we don't. We need to be sure we're not in a panic situation. We need to understand ahead of time that the mother is here to help us in our relationship with the father and then to give proper and due respect. And the Proverbs and other places in the Bible are full of that, about how a child should respect the mother, the church, and therefore let her help them with their relationship with our father and our elder brother. So let's stop there then for today.